0: This podcast is brought to you by Bruner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit LizBruner.com and take your skills to the next level. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz, and today is a very special podcast for two reasons, actually. Number one, this is my 100th episode, and I'll be inviting you to celebrate this milestone with me in a wonderful, special way. And number two, because of my guest today. When I first learned about his inspiring story, I have to tell you, I was blown away. If you've ever wondered if redemption is possible, my guest is here to tell you it is. His journey is one of second chances, going from the darkest vices as a nightclub promoter to saving millions of people's lives all around the world. Scott Harrison is a true testament to the transformative power within us all. Scott founded Charity Water, and he is on a mission to bring clean water to everyone around the world. His inspirational story is chronicled in his New York Times best-selling book called Thirst. I love this book. It's amazing. Scott, welcome to my podcast and thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thanks for having me. What an honor to be on such a momentous podcast. This is a very special one.
0: It is indeed. 771 million people do not have access to clean, safe drinking water. And from the statistics, that's one in 10 people or twice the population of the United States. I found those numbers to be absolutely staggering, Scott. How, why is this happening?
1: Yeah, well, it's not something that most people really think about, right? I mean, we wake up here and we start our coffee, maybe we get some filtered water out of our refrigerator and we brush our teeth and maybe grab a bottle of water on the way to the gym. You know, water is something that so many people take for granted just because of the circumstances we've been born into. You know, I was born into a middle class family in Philadelphia and I never had to drink dirty water my entire life. But one in ten people on the planet just didn't have that privilege. They weren't born into that situation. And all they've known is dirty water. And what that looks like is really shocking. It's women and girls walking eight hours a day to a faraway swamp or pond or river to get brown viscous muddy water that's infected, that's got parasites and worms in it, sometimes mm-hmm. fecally contaminated because they're sharing it with the, the animals and livestock. It causes so much unnecessary pain and suffering. You know, we're 16 years in now with Charity Water, which is a, is a pretty simple idea, a charity that helps people get clean water. Uh, I wasn't very creative when I came up with the name. <laughs>
0: It's working, Scott. It's working. (laughs) Well, we've
1: seen a lot of progress. You know, We've seen more awareness towards this issue. We've seen more funding go into the space. One of the great things about water is it's a completely solvable problem. There are myriad issues right now that we just don't really know how to solve. We don't have a cure for late-stage pancreatic cancer. We don't know how to end Parkinson's disease or Multiple sclerosis or cystic fibrosis, right? And we're working hard in labs and and people are centrifuging test tubes and water is not like that. We know definitively how to help every human being alive get access to the most basic need for life, but yet we haven't created the will to do it. We haven't created the resources. It frustrates me as well, Liz. I mean, we can land a rocket now, you know, on a moving platform in an ocean But we can't get people clean water Mm -hmm. around the world.
0: You are making that happen. And that's your mission. When you first saw the dirty effects of water, that's when this mission kind of came into your head. But I want to go back in time a bit to when your life was really quite the opposite of what it is right now. At 28 years old, you thought you had it all. You were living the high life. You were a top nightclub promoter in New York City. And And as you write in your book, there was this endless cycle of hanging out with the supermodels. There were serious drugs, heavy drinking. And it sounds like getting wasted every night was kind of your job, right? And getting
1: others wasted.
0: (laughs) So this was truly a radical departure from how you grew up. You were an only child. And you and your dad became the caregivers for your mom, who suffered from extreme carbon monoxide poisoning. How so?
1: Yeah. Well, there was a, this freak accident when I was four years old. Uh, we moved into a house in South Jersey uh, in a suburb of, of Philadelphia. And unknown to us was this faulty heat exchanger that was leaking carbon monoxide. Uh, unfortunately, we moved in in the dead of winter. So, all the windows were closed. And the, the house was advertised as an energy-efficient house, which is great unless you're breathing carbon monoxide inside your energy-efficient house. And, and we were. And we all started developing some symptoms and on New Year's Day 1980 my mom was really the canary in the coal mine and she passed out unconscious on the floor. This led to a long series of doctor visits and blood tests and then they finally found massive amounts of carbon monoxide in her bloodstream. Her immune system irreparably shut down. Her body's ability to process anything chemical was forever gone and the most ordinary things would make her sick from soap to, you know, a car going by with some exhaust, fabric softener, deodorant, you know, would knock her out for days if she got a whiff of deodorant. So, she really had to, from this point on, create a pure environment for herself. This actually looked like her moving into a tile-covered bathroom, my dad and I covering that bathroom with aluminum foil so that none of the tile was exposed. And then she slept on an army cot that was washed in baking soda 20 times.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: I really never saw my mom's face. She had a version of the N95 mask on for her whole life after that. So it was a really weird childhood. My parents raised me in the church and they would credit their strong Christian faith as the reason why my dad didn't run off and was able to just stay by her side for so long. But Mm -hmm. you know, at 18, I wanted to have some fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I moved to New York City and and lived the unfortunately cliche Prodigal Son Rebellion story that lasted 10 long years, filling up 40 nightclubs full of reveling, drinking, drugging. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty good at that job. I was good at getting people to line up to hope they might get past the velvet rope so that we could take $25 a cocktail from them or Mm. $1,000 for a, a nice bottle of champagne.
0: Well, and you talk about in your book, this really was the beginning of that dark tunnel version of yourself. And this went on for 10 years, a decade. But your body finally tells you, whoa, it can't handle this anymore. What happened?
1: Well, you know, one day I kind of go unexplainably numb on half my body. And, uh, you know, I remember my, my club partner at the time is like, dude, no wonder you're having health issues. I mean, you, know, you go to bed at <laughs> noon, you, know, you go out to dinner at 11 o'clock at night. And so, I was convinced that I was going to die and I had some sort of brain tumor or, you know, some incurable disease. And then I started very quickly to think about heaven and hell, you know, some of those, those <laughs> concepts that I was brought up with as a kid in the church. And well, did I believe in any of that stuff? And like, I was pretty sure I was going to hell if I did. <laughs> That's the way that i had been living. And then I started thinking about legacy. If I died at 28 years old, what would my life have meant? And it really would have meant nothing. My tombstone, the best that I could come up with was, here lies a man who's gotten a million people drunk. That was it. I hadn't done anything to contribute to my neighbor in need, or I hadn't been generous with my time or my talent or my money. Um, I had just lived selfishly for myself and and brought a lot of people on in that selfish lifestyle. So, you know, this led to kind of a rediscovery of faith and spirituality and what did I still believe and, you know, what did I want to opt back into? And a couple months later, actually, the health conditions just went away. I just stopped being numb. You know, the doctors couldn't find anything wrong with me and the MRIs and the brain scans and they said, no, you're completely healthy. I wound up selling everything I owned and deciding to kind of give one year of the 10 years I'd wasted in service to others. And I applied to 10 famous humanitarian organizations that I'd tangentially heard of. I was denied by all these organizations because it turns out they're not looking for nightclub promoters to join humanitarian missions. But I was very fortunate that one organization said if I was willing to pay them $500 a month, and if i was willing to go live in the poorest country in the world which at that time was post-war liberia west africa then they would take me and i said great here's my credit card number i'm in
0: oh my gosh
1: my life changed in in such a radical way as i set foot on a hospital ship off of the coast of west africa with 350 doctors and surgeons and nurses all volunteers all who had come from countries around the world to serve people for free. Mm -hmm. I quit the drinking and the smoking and the drugging and the gambling and the pornography. and I vowed to kind of go completely clean and see where that would take my life. think of this as an ocean liner, like a cruise liner that had been gutted and turned into a state-of-the-art hospital ship.
0: We have to point out it's not a luxury cruise liner. Well,
1: it wasn't a luxury cruise liner. No, no, you're right, it was 50-some years old, there were roaches. But at one point, you know, 50 plus years ago, it had been one of the early ocean liners. Yeah. You know, everything changed for me. And my third day there, the people knew we were coming. The coming of these doctors had been advertised throughout the country. At about five in the morning, I remember getting into a convoy of Land Rovers with these doctors and nurses. And I had on my hospital scrubs and my volunteer job was going to be photojournalist. I was going to document Mm -hmm. all of the patients for the medical library to be archived. And then I would write stories that the organization would use to raise awareness and money. And I knew that we had 1,500 available surgery slots to fill. And I remember thinking, are there 1,500 sick people that are going to turn up? And when we turned the corner The government had given us the football stadium, the soccer stadium in the center of the city. And we saw 5,000 people standing in the parking lot, waiting for us to get there and open the doors and begin the triage. It was such a devastating moment realizing we would send more than 3,000 sick, desperate people home without seeing a doctor. Because we didn't have enough doctors. We didn't have enough resources. And that left such an impression on me. Yeah. And among other things, that one year turned into two years of all the things that I was exposed to from cleft lips and cleft palates and leprosy, flesh eating disease, of all the things that I saw, it was people drinking dirty water that left the biggest impression on me. Yeah. And I learned two things as I learned half the country was drinking dirty water and half of the disease in the country was because people were drinking dirty water. So that was the eureka moment for me, the discovery of the root cause of so much of this sickness and suffering. It was dirty water. And maybe this is something I could go home and work on so that 5,000 sick people wouldn't need to stand outside a football stadium only to be turned away.
0: In your book, Thirst, not only do you share many of those stories that were so transformative, but the the pictures that you have from your photojournalism experience, they're profound. And I know when I opened up the, the page to some of those pictures of those people who were so desperate for care and surgery, and then the transformation, it was remarkable. So now we're going to fast forward a little bit, because then after this transformation in you, from a, a standpoint of how can I make a difference, you decide in 2006, you have no money, you have really no experience running a business, yeah. but you found a charity, Water. But what's so interesting about this is this is where your history as a nightclub promoter actually was a blessing in your first fundraising event that took place in a nightclub the day after your 31st birthday. What did you do?
1: It was a kind of fun redemptive turn. Um, (laughs) I got a club donated and I put up a bunch of photos that I'd taken of people drinking dirty water showing the need. And I invited people to come to my 31st birthday party. And I said, I'll I'll give you open bar for for an hour, but you have to donate $20 to get into the club. And the story of of this event spread and over 700 people came. And at the end of the night, we had $15,000 of cash in this giant plexi box. And we took 100% of that money and we built our first well in Uganda. Mm. When the well was built and we, we got to fix a couple others nearby, we sent the photos and the GPS coordinates. Back to the 700 people. And we said, this is exactly where your money went. Because you came, because you gave $20, people's lives have been transformed. And they are now drinking clean water. Here, look. Mm. And the idea of closing the loop was so novel at the time. None of the 700 people expected to get photos, satellite images of wells, and video of clean water flowing from a $20 Gift from a $20 bill they threw into a box. And that simple idea was so transformative. People said, How do we give more? How do we get our friends involved? That really became the core of Charity Waters' business model. This idea that if we can show people where their donations go, we can restore their faith in giving because so many people are skeptical about charities. So many people are cynical when it comes to charities and to giving. We can create this global movement of compassionate, generous, Believers, people who believe the money will actually reach the people in need, and that we might be able to make a a real dent in a paralyzing problem as big as the global water crisis if we stayed true to this value.
0: And what I love also about that, and this was very important to you back then, it still continues to resonate, I think, today building trust and transparency was paramount. And you made it the mission that 100% of the donations would go towards yeah. funding clean water projects. And that's still true today. How do you make that possible? It is. It's a
1: kind of crazy idea. But I, I just said, well, the number one objection people have of why they're not giving to charity is because they don't know where their money's going to go. Or they, they don't believe that it's all going to reach the people in need. And all charities have overhead. And I think there's, there's very appropriate overheads. I think about 20 cents on a dollar is appropriate. But we said, well, what if the public didn't have to ever pay for that? overhead. What if we could go and open up a separate bank account and go find business people to pay all of those nasty, unsexy staff salaries <laughs> and office rent and toner for the Epson copy machine, all those costs. And we made this promise to the public that forever, every penny, pound, euro, you know whether they were to give $1 or $100 or even a million dollars, every single penny would go directly to the mm. field to help people get clean water, and then we could prove where that money went. Yeah, That turned out to be extraordinarily difficult, but <laughs> 15 years later, we still run two separately audited bank accounts. Mm. We've had well over a million donors now from around the world have Amazing. given you know, over $700 million and 100% of their money goes directly to help people get clean water. I mean, that's allowed us now to help 15.5 million humans get clean water around the world. Yeah. And I think that 100% model is a reason people cite for giving. You know, we've heard time and time again, Liz, this is the first donation I've given to a charity or this is the first time I've given in five years because I know where the money's going. We're kind of so crazy about the integrity of the 100% model. We even pay back credit card fees. <laughs> so if a donor gives $100 on their American Express Believe me, I wish I got 100 but Amex takes 4 bucks. They take their 4%. They drop $96 into the charity's bank account. Well, we actually go to our overhead donors and we pull $4 from them and we make that $96 donation whole to the intended $100 that was given and then we send $100 to the field. Brilliant. It's a really unique business model and it's served us well. And today at scale, $131 business leaders and families pay all the overhead. There are 110 staff in the United States at Charity Water. All those staff salaries, all the flights, all that's covered by 131 generous families so that millions of people around the world now can have a pure experience.
0: One of my favorite stories in the book is you're at one of the fundraising galas where you were hoping that in the middle of the gala, You're going to go live where they're digging a well and the water's going to spout up. And as I was reading this story in the book, I found myself, my heart was racing because I was so excited. I'm like, are they going to see it? Are they going to make it? Is it going to happen? And it does. That had to be an incredible experience. And I can't even imagine the energy in the room that night.
1: We were at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, and we had some of our top supporters there in black tie. And we'd asked them to fund this well in Ethiopia. I think it was nine hours later. So, evening in New York was actually morning in this village in Ethiopia. And we wanted to show them that moment when we struck clean water. You know, we sent a bunch of satellite gear out there and (laughs) with all 400 people in the room at the moment that we needed it to work, it did. And water was shooting out of the ground and, you know, 350 people in Ethiopia were standing around the drilling rigs, shouting, singing, celebrating. It was quite beautiful.
0: It's a wonderful story in the book, too. To date, Charity Water has funded nearly 112,000 water projects in 29 countries. And as you mentioned, that results in 15 million people now having access to clean water. Do you remember the feeling of funding that first well? You know,
1: I got to go back to that first well 10 years later. And I think that was even more memorable realizing that a well that was paid for because a bunch of people came to a nightclub and tossed $20. was continuing to serve people in Northern Uganda a decade later. You know, most of our cars don't last 10 years. We realized that about 10 million liters had been pumped of clean water out of the ground, serving the community there. I mean, if you think about that, you've got a one liter bottle of water somewhere in your house. Well, that's $2. So 20 million of those bottles Yeah, that would cost you $20 million if you bought it at Whole Foods. Probably. (laughs) You know, just thinking about the extraordinary impact and really how far money goes. Mm -hmm. A a well costs about $10,000, an entire water project in a village. And producing the equivalent in in our world of $20 million worth of water is really extraordinary. Knowing that we've now been able to do that not once and not 10 times, but 110,000 times across yeah. 29 countries really keeps us going knowing that it's possible and wanting to reach more people. Mm-hmm. You know, Liz, we've helped 15 million people. Out of the 771 million, it's 2% of the work that needs to be done. It's 1 mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember coming off stage once at a, at a speech at a conference and someone says, we well, just need to do 50 times more. And I was like, i uh, Yeah, I guess. (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) Right? So, you know, 2% can sound really small or, well, if you're 150th of the way there, you just need to do the other 49 50ths. So that's really why we're focused on, you know, growing the movement of Charity Water, growing our donor community and really trying to make a, a much bigger dent in this problem.
0: I do know that you work in partnership with other nonprofits around the world to help build these wells. So it's wonderful that you've now created this network besides Charity Water itself. And no surprise folks, Scott has been recognized in Fortune magazine's 40 under 40 list, the Forbes magazine Impact 30 list and recently number 10 in Fast Company's 100 most creative people in business issue. I'm curious, has anyone ever talked to you about creating a movie of your life? Yeah,
1: they're actually working on it right now. There's a couple of scripts that are out there.
0: Who do you want to play you? I have my idea already, but I'm curious to know who you want to play you. You know,
1: it's funny. This may surprise people, but I'm a fan of Andrew Garfield's work. I think he's a fantastic actor. And I don't know who your idea is, but.
0: Well, I think there's a resemblance between DiCaprio and you. Oh, he's
1: way too old, though, for this.
0: Well, maybe. Makeup, makeup, makeup. All right. I know that there's a quote in the book that has tremendous meaning for you, and I want to share it with everyone. I spent a decade looking out for no one else but myself before I figured out that giving to others brought the greatest joy. And Scott, it brings me such great joy to share with our listeners that to celebrate and honor this, my 100th episode, I have decided to pledge $100 to launch my own campaign, and I am planning to match every dollar up to $2,500. So hopefully at least a minimum of $5,000 will be raised for Charity Water. Amazing. And your team has graciously created a special link just for this campaign. It's charitywater.org slash best life. And I want to say to all of you who are listening right now to celebrate this milestone, please make a donation and let's continue to help Scott's mission of clean water. That's charitywater.org slash best life. And of course, you can learn more about Scott's nonprofit, CharityWater.org, his incredible book, Thirst. I've read it. I found it so powerful. And we're going to have all of that information in our show notes, again, along with that link for this 100th episode campaign of CharityWater.org slash Best Life. And in full transparency, (laughs) I have to say, I promise to keep people updated as to how much has been raised via my social media platforms. And I hope people will stay tuned for that. So, Scott, an honor, truly, to have you on my podcast, and thank you so much for showing us that not only is redemption possible, but one person can make a difference, because that is you all the way around.
1: Well, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for your generosity. And the last thing I'd say, I mean, clean water is one of the very few things everybody can agree on these days. Clean water for humans is so basic. Mm Mm-hmm. It's really allowed us to build a pretty amazing community of people who might disagree on lots of other issues, but can come together and say, my gosh, people need clean water to thrive, to live a healthy and fulfilling life. And we know how to do it. So thanks for inviting your community into into the Charity Water community.
0: Well, I want people to think the next time they brush their teeth, Take a sip of water, make that cup of coffee. I want them to remember this story in your podcast. So thank you again, Scott. And I truly hope that Scott's story will inspire you to not only make a donation, but know that you are contributing to helping many people around the world live their best healthy life. From the bottom of my heart, I say thank you. And until next time, be well.